Well, Canada did not make the political podium when it comes to the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympic Games. The U.S., the U.K., and the Australians were the first three to announce the measures, and Canada comes in fourth, but... The Olympics are clearly not just about sports, they never have been, but it's now being set up as a geopolitical competition between China and, well, some of the rest of the world anyway. And the main event so far? Human rights. I don't think the decision by Canada or by many other countries uh, to choose to not send uh, diplomatic representation to the Beijing Olympics and Paralympics is going to come as a surprise to China. We have been very clear. Uh, over the past many years of our deep concerns around human rights violations uh, and this uh, is a continuation of us expressing our deep concerns for human rights violations. The U.S. and the U.K. have concluded that China is committing a genocide against the Muslim minority Uyghur population. The Conservatives and the NDP agree, but the federal government says more study is still needed to determine that. But with the human rights crackdown that the Chinese are doing in Hong Kong, Tibet, the retaliatory arrest of the two Michaels, the virtual disappearance of the tennis star Peng Shui, who was essentially silenced after she made allegations of against a high-level member of the Communist Party that he sexually assaulted her, China has denied all these allegations and is threatening severe consequences for countries like Canada who are part of this diplomatic boycott. But does this signal a bigger shift in Canada's policy towards China? Will China retaliate and will more countries join this boycott coalition? Let's find out. Joining me now are MPs. Rob Oliphant is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Foreign Affairs Critics for the Conservatives, MP Michael Chong, and for the NDP, Heather McPherson, good morning to all three of you. I appreciate you being here. Mr. Oliphant, obviously China, China is dismissing the boycott. They've called it a farce, but they clearly are preparing to retaliate. The U.S. Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, told me he expects uh, retaliation of some sort. Um, why the boycott and what kind of retaliation does Canada expect? I think there are two things are going on right now. I think Canadians are standing behind their athletes and uh, uh, those who will attend the Olympic and Paralympic Games and want to make sure that they have every chance to succeed and, and do well. At the same time, Canada wants to make a very strong statement to China about uh, human rights uh, violations, particularly in Xinjiang and uh, towards the Uyghur people, but not only that. And we want to make sure uh, that they hear that message. And one way uh, to do that is to look at the Olympics and recognize that uh, we will have a diplomatic boycott of those games and we'll not be sending uh, diplomats to the games in, in out of respect for uh, our Canadians' desires to ensure that human rights issues are raised clearly and loudly. Okay, uh, Mr. Chong, I know you'd long called for action. Uh, this is the diplomatic boycott. I know you wanted it quicker. Nonetheless, it's here now. Is it enough? No, it's not enough. And that's why we've called on the government to take a range of measures to counter China's belligerence and its violations of international law. Uh, we've called on the government to make a decision to ban Huawei from our telecommunications networks. Uh, we've called on them to put in place a robust plan to sanction uh, officials for responsible for violations of international law in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Uh, we've called on them to join the quadrilateral security dialogue with India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. Right. And we called on them to put a robust plan in place to protect Canadians here on Canadian soil against intimidation operations on part of the Chinese. Uh, and Ms. McPherson, can you weigh in? Is, is this enough? Or given the fact that both the Conservatives and the NDP have concluded there's a genocide going on, uh, how is a diplomatic boycott in any way a proportional response? 
Well, you know, I've said before, I, I don't necessarily think that this is enough. I do feel like the the government's response to China on a number of different issues, whether it is what is happening in Xinjiang with the with the Uyghurs, whether the, the genocide that, that's very clearly happening there, whether it's what's happening in Hong Kong, you know, we've seen this in a number of different fronts. And, and um, what, what I find is that, that the Canadian government has not had a very coherent plan. We haven't been able to see a way forward, a path that this government's put in place. And I don't want to under, understate this. This is very complicated. Our relationship with China is very complicated. And there is a lot of work to be, to be done. It's just, it does feel like the government has not taken that leadership to do that work that needs to happen. And so we're in these situations where we're trying to slide under these low bars. We're trying to do these, these tiny little things instead of actually having a coherent good plan for China. Well, Mr. Oliphant, look, five foreign affairs ministers in six years. Uh, there's no ambassador now to China. Uh, we still haven't made a decision on Huawei after more than three years after our Five Eyes partners on this. And there's been a long promised new policy on China to come and we haven't seen it. So how about practical? Is this a shift with, to a new policy vis-a-vis -vis China and when will Canadians actually get to see it? I think, I think it would, uh, would have to be fair to say, and I think anyone would recognize that we've taken very strong leadership on all of these issues. Uh, we've led the way at the UN Human Rights Council on issues around the, the, uh, the, the Uyghurs and other issues, strong statements about democracy and, and, uh, and the determination of the people of Hong Kong. Uh, we had an ambassador who had a very uh, important trip to Tibet, and we have stood on supply chain issues as well as other issues with respect to China. We do it carefully. Uh, we, we do it uh, steadily, but we do it consistently. We have our eyes wide open when it comes to China, and we work with our allied partners. We don't, right. we're not going to be out on, on, on a limb on anything like this. We're going to do it carefully and steadily uh, with our like-minded partners. Right, That's right. the way the Canadians want us to work. Although on Friday, the U.S. put more sanctions in on China, Canada hasn't. I mean, I'll put that to you, Michael Chong. Uh, you know, again, Mr. Oliphant has said, you know, they've taken a lead. They have put together the treaty on um, arbitrary detention, which a lot of countries signed on to. Fair enough. Do you think, though, Canada's China policy has gone far enough or what is it? Well, frankly, they haven't taken a lead. And the the uh, the instruments for the arbitrary detention was a declaration, not a binding treaty. Um, the Vienna Convention has long existed to protect Canadians abroad. So the government hasn't taken any meaningful measures to co counter China's threats. With respect to the genocide taking place against the Uyghur Muslim minority, we've called on the government to put in place new effective measures to ban the importation of tomatoes and cotton from Xinjiang. There's plenty of evidence that Uyghurs are being forced into camps to pick to pick cotton and produce tomatoes. The government in introduced measures in January earlier this year, but they've been ineffective. In fact, we import about $300 million a day of products from China. And in the last 10, 11 months, only two shipments right. uh, have been blocked from China. I wanna put something to all of you on this. And, and I think all parties are saying we have to take strong measures against China. Maybe there's going to be a position paper on this, but I'll start with you, Heather McPherson, and, and I'll ask it to all three of you. Is it the height of hypocrisy for all the leaders of all your three respective parties to all say we want tough measures against China's human rights when none of those leaders have taken a strong stance on a controversial Bill 21 in Quebec, which is the secularization law this past week, which was used to remove a grade three teacher from a job in Quebec because she'd wear a hijab. So here we are talking about China, but Ms. McPherson, 
if you believe it's a, you know, this is a discriminatory policy, Bill 21, which your leader has said, why not join the legal challenge on that? How, how can you take a, a strong stance on China and not on Quebec? Well, I mean, I guess it's it's easy for me to take a strong stance on the, the ban in Quebec. I think it's it's incredibly discriminatory, and I, I will be pushing against it for sure. But, but, you know, Canada does have a role to play in terms of recognizing our own human rights abuses, you know, human rights abuses that have happened against Indigenous people, human rights abuses that are happening across our country. I'm from Edmonton. You know, we've got a real problem of, of racism and attacks on Muslim women in this community. Um, you know, so, so Canada does have to look in the mirror. We do have to do our own, our own work in our own backyard. But that is not to say that we don't also have an obligation to hold up international law, to hold up human rights law around the world and to play that role. You know, Canadians think of ourselves and we should think of ourselves. We have a long history of, mm. of being that that country that that fought for human rights. You know, one of the, the one of the the key reasons that I'm a new Democrat is that that I, I believe that the 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 fight to protect people's human rights around the world, regardless of where that right. happens, needs to happen, whether it's in Canada or whether it's right. whether it's abroad. And again, there is no I'm not uh, Mr. Olaf, I'd love an answer from you. There's no parallel between what's going on in China and anywhere here in Canada. And I know the Chinese like to point that out. And these are false equivalences. But but it is important that we say, you know, the federal government's not joining the challenge in court on a law that your leader, sir, says is discriminatory. Uh, why not take a stronger stance on that and bolster the position that you really do stand for human rights? Well, I think I would agree with, uh, with uh, Heather. And I think that the reality is uh, our imperfections in this country don't uh, limit us from, from reminding the whole world, including all Canadians, about human rights. I think that's absolutely important. We will always stand for human rights, and we'll do it carefully and cautiously. And uh, But we also understand that this process is uh, going to go through the courts in Quebec, and the people of Quebec have the right to go through that process. And so we will we'll be watching it. We'll be uh, uh, following it very closely. But it doesn't limit our ability to stand up for human rights everywhere. Uh, we appreciate you don't have to be perfect at home to criticize the human rights violations that are going on in China. We all say that. doesn't undermine it. But I'm just trying to get at a sense of consistency, Mr. Chong. Again, Mr. O'Toole has said he opposes Bill 21. Uh, it's Quebec's business. But why is the violation, again, if he sees this as a violation of rights in Quebec, why is that Quebec's business, but what's happening in China, your business? Well, Evan, I've made my views known on this to you um, very clear over the last several years on Bill 21. You know, this bill bans observant Jews, Sikhs and Muslims from public service jobs in Quebec. It bans them from being teachers, police officers and other frontline workers. And that's just plain wrong. And we have to stand for human rights both here and abroad. And it's up to the prime minister to make a decision on this very issue. All right, got to leave it there. Rob Oliphant, Heather McPherson, Michael Chung, thanks to the three of you for joining us today. Hitting back, well, Canada has now threatened to retaliate with tariffs against the U.S. unless the United States drops a proposed piece of legislation that would give $12,500 of a tax credit to people who buy American-made electric vehicles. According to Canada, this is a de facto tariff on the Canadian auto industry and a violation of the new NAFTA agreement. Now, I spoke with the new U.S. ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, about this, and I asked him, will the United States drop this controversial proposed legislation? Here's what he said. It is a legislative proposal. 
That proposal has not passed. It is subject to debate. It is subject to amendment. And there is nothing to rescind at this point because the provision does not exist. So exactly how will Canada retaliate? And is this part of a new wave of protectionism from the U.S. that includes a 17% new tariff on Canadian softwood lumber? Let's find out. Joining me now, the Minister of International Trade, Mary Ng. Okay, uh, Minister, great to have you on the program. You co-wrote this letter with the Finance Minister to senior senators in the U.S. threatening to impose tariffs on U.S. goods if this uh, protectionism, this legislation on electric vehicles is not removed. Can you give us specifically, how will Canada retaliate? Well, let me just um, share with Canadians that this is not where we want to go, but this is certainly what Canada is prepared to do uh, to defend its national interest. Um, I want to share with uh, Canadians that we have continued to work, and we actually are continuing to work with the Americans. These discussions continue. We want to find a solution uh, for uh, for Canada. But this issue is really, really serious and really important. It's why I was there last week. And this issue is also moving quickly through the U.S. Senate. So it's really important that Canada is very clear about its uh, concerns and what Canada will be prepared to do. But what we really want to do is actually find a solution that will work for Canada. Okay, so so, but this is, you're, you're now threatening essentially a trade war here. You do, this legislation passes, we will do equal retaliation. In your letter, you said that the uh, tax credit on the electric vehicles produced in the U.S. is essentially the equivalent of a 34% uh, tariff on Canadian cars. Is that what you're saying? You will slap the equivalent of, of, of tariffs on goods in the U.S. What goods specifically will be targeted? Well, look, that's uh, what we are working on over the next number of days. We are looking at, uh, you know, at a list, at a range of goods uh, across many sectors um, and, uh, you know, where Canadian tariffs uh, would be applied. So we are looking at that and we will put that out. Um, and uh, and we are also looking at other measures uh, through the USMC. I mean, this particular provision around the EV tax credit is uh, is is discriminatory to Canada. It is not uh, compliant to USMCA. MCA. It is not compliant to the WTO. So we would consider uh, suspending something like dairy, or we would consider suspending something like uh, copyright or IP. But as I said earlier, what we really want to do is find uh, a solution that will work right. for Canada and for our industries and for our workers. Right. That's what we want to do. Right. That has to continue. Um, but uh, but I think it's really important to also communicate clearly to uh, the American congressional leaders who are considering this right now, how impactful, how right. important, how discriminatory but this it, is to Canada. Yeah. Okay, it does sound like when you were down in Washington, you talked to a lot of these leaders last week. Obviously, the response was not that good because this has escalated from let's talk and work this out. This is just a piece of legislation that hasn't passed. And that's what the new U.S. ambassador to Canada told me. But you know it's going quickly. It sounds to, to, to us like you think this is going to pass. So you've upped the ante here, this, this threat of a trade war. So dairy, copyright, IP. Um, when do you think Canada would impose these tariffs? Would it be before the legislation passes or after? Well, I th what my hope is is that we are not going to have to do this at all. But what 
is really important is that Canada prepares for the worst, which is what this is. You have seen Canada respond when the unjustified tariffs on steel and aluminum were levied towards Canada, and Canada responded accordingly. We are being clear with the American administration that this EV tax credit is equivalent to 34% of a tariff for Canada, and that's just not acceptable. It hurts American, it hurts Canadian industry, but it also hurts the Americans. It hurts Canadian jobs. It also hurts the but Americans. But just for the record, they're suggesting that a tax credit is not the same as a tariff. They're going to argue, you know, this doesn't violate the issue. Tax credits are not the same as tariffs. What do you say to that? It's discriminatory in its application to Canada. That's uh, and uh, and and that is uh, that is the fact. I mean, it does not comply to the USMCA. It does not comply to WTO. This right. is why we are. This is why we are responding in the way that we are responding. And I spoke to the brand new uh, U.S. ambassador to Canada, and, and I, I raised this issue. I said, "What are you doing about this uh, U.S. protectionism?" And he said, "Look, Canada does two billion dollars a day of trade with the United States. We have to look at it in the big picture. And it's like, you know, you're hacking off someone's foot, and you're saying, don't worry, you got many other body parts to deal with.' Um, is this the is this EV tax credit? Because this hits our second largest export, which is automobiles. Is this a red line for Canada?" And, and, and how damaging could this be? Because this could reset the entire relationship because you're talking about the auto industry and the future of the auto industry. This is the top priority for Canada with the United States. The Prime Minister was very clear and communicated that to the President. The Deputy Prime Minister, myself, my ministerial colleagues have communicated that to, um, to the Americans. We are actively working on finding a solution that can uh, that can work for Canadian yeah. industry that can work for the Canadian economy so I want uh, I want to let Canadians know that we continue to do that work we want to find right. a solution but we have to be able right. to uh, to put uh, put the US on notice that Canada would be prepared to do this if we had you know yeah. if it comes to that okay just real quick just quickly give us a timeline how quick could these tariffs hit the United States and how quickly could they pass this tax credit well, um, the urgency of this issue in the U.S. is that it is being considered in the U.S. Senate right now. The Senate is the one that controls that timing. But what Canada needs to do is make sure just that is the reason I was there last week. It is the reason that we want to make sure that we are clear in our communication about how important this issue is to Canada. And uh, and that's why that is the why the letter and that is why the letter now. Amazing. We signed this new UMC, USMCA and now all of a sudden Canada alleges that the U.S. is breaking it for protectionism. Here we go. Uh, Minister, I've got to leave it there this morning. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Evan. Not a success story. That is how the Auditor General described Canada's enforcement of the critical COVID border measures. And that scathing review has raised new questions. Will the new travel rules you're all seeing right now in the wake of the Omicron variant be any more effective? Well, before the government can fix the problems, they have to know what they are. And here's what the Auditor General found. The report found, quote, significant gaps in the enforcement of quarantine and COVID-19 testing orders, including the Public Health Agency of Canada was unsure if 75% of air travelers into Canada stayed at a quarantine hotel during the first half of this year. 75%. 30% of the COVID-19 test results were not matched with travelers. 30%. Remember, at the time, incoming travelers were required to book a three-day quarantine hotel stay. But that requirement was dropped for all air travelers in August. Now, things improved by June of 2021. Still, 
the agency then didn't know the status of 37% of incoming travel. Whether we will reach 100%, no. We'll never reach 100% of people uh, being contacted for any particular reason because such a system uh, doesn't exist. However, a, a, a good and improving system is better than no system at all. What other gaps are there in the system, or is the system too broken to ensure that this new round of restrictions will be successful? Let's do a deeper dive. Joining me now is the Auditor General of Canada, Karen Hogan. Uh, great to have you on the program again. Uh, let's go over this report. It's really important, obviously, given that we're still going through this. What were the most egregious errors you found in terms of the enforcement of border control measures? It's always a pleasure to be here, Evan. Thank you for having me. So I think what we found in this report, it was a bit of a follow-up on our um, our report from March. And then we also looked at new measures, including COVID-19 testing and hotel stays. And while we saw some improvement in that uh, the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada was able to contact more people, um, they still were unable to know whether or not one-third of incoming travelers had quarantined as they should have been. Um, you know, more concerning for me was that they didn't take those lessons learned from the enforcement of quarantine measures and apply them to the new uh, measures that were in place. And so they're unable to tell you and me whether or not these measures are effective at stopping the spread of the pandemic um, and whether or not they need to be adjusted. Okay, so you're saying at this point, even though new measures are there, they still haven't taken the lessons learned. They still couldn't tell us with any sort of convincing data these measures were effective. They couldn't tell us that. They don't have the data. Well, actually, a lot of our problems that we found in the audit report really go back to just that basic information management and data gathering and being able to collect things. They need to really start using technology in a better way. And we saw that that's why the improvement happened in being able to contact people as they stopped collecting traveler information in paper format um, and moved to the ArriveCan app. And so now they need to use that to better monitor and control the border measures uh, that they're going to put in place going forward. Right, and I'll I want to just read from the report. You said the agency's inability to confirm uh, whether more than a third of travelers complied with quarantine orders remains a significant problem. I know they were using paper. What were the, why was it so bad? Like, what are the key problems? What do they need to fix right now? I think it's thinking through how they're going to work out um, the monitoring and enforcement. You, you can have a clear requirement um, and communicate it so that it's well understood, but then monitoring and enforcement are, are important elements to seeing it all through. Um, so as I said, a better use of technology, but really being able to match travelers with their test results, uh, you know, consistency in how you want to enforce measures across the country and, and not have it be different depending on the region that you live in, really some of the elements that need, they need to focus on to improve this. But here we are again, there's new travel rules that Canada has now implemented to curb the spread of the Omicron variant on arrival airport testing. There's been a lot of criticism about, from your report of how these have been implemented, the condition of quarantine hotels, whether we can track people and whether they work. Given what you found, should Canadians have any confidence that these rules will be enforced and that they're useful? I think you have to realize that every single person plays a part um, in helping stop the spread of COVID-19. And health and safety measures are needed. That's really clear. So now it's about making sure that they're understood, 
and the public health agency putting in place better mechanisms to monitor and enforce them. I, I, I know that Canadians are good rule followers and I trust that they'll keep following the rules that are there because we all want to see an end to the pandemic. Okay, but, but if they can't track 37%, that, that was, and that's the improved number, is, is, is that a failure of the system? I mean, what's the point of doing it if, you know, 37% of people are just walking and we have no idea? And then how do we get any really good data about where this is spreading and what's going on if that's the improved number? How would you describe the system? I think any oversight system or, or enforcement system has to be risk-based. Um, so you, you can't probably monitor 100% of everything that you look at. Um, however, you know this isn't a success story when just contacting more people um, is, is, is the measure, right? The measure is whether or not those individuals had good isolation plans and whether they respected that 14-day quarantine. So it's thinking about the outcomes right. and not just sort of the, the, the process to get to the outcomes. And um, I, I'm confident that they'll keep improving. We, we saw some great improvement. Um, but again, it, it also rests on each Canadian doing their part. The other, uh, one of the other aspects you studied is protecting uh, temporary foreign workers, especially on farms. There, there had been the site of key outbreaks throughout the pandemic on those farms. Uh, and there's been concerns about the food safety issue. You also found it was a nightmare there. Uh, what did you find in terms of uh, enforcement and making sure that those were safe uh, working environments? I think to understand what we looked at in the temporary foreign worker program, I got to give you a little, I'll, I'll back you up and give you a little bit of history about it. The temporary foreign worker program is there to fill labor shortages in the agricultural sector. Um, and Employment and Social Development Canada uses inspections in order to, as the main tool, to verify if employers, in this case mostly farmers, are complying with health and safety guidelines. So new guidelines were put in place because of the pandemic. And what we found is that the quality, rigor, and timeliness of the inspections was so poor that though inspections didn't provide any assurance that employers were complying and helping to protect the health and safety of temporary foreign workers. Yeah, the inspections you found were, were, were almost useless. Has that changed? Again, if we're, go, if we're concerned about uh, Omicron, has the inspections changed uh, for the temporary foreign workers? Well, throughout our audit period, and we started this work back in 2020 and went right up until the end of June of 2021, uh, we didn't see an improvement. In fact, we saw things worsen. So back in December of 2020, I actually spoke with senior officials at Employment and Social Development Canada and told them about our concerning findings and asked them to prioritize the health and safety of workers. Um, and unfortunately, we saw mm -hmm. the situation get worse. So they really do need to sit back now and do differently going forward um, so that uh, the inspections provide value and demonstrate that the health and safety of workers are protected. Okay, got to leave it there. Really important work on the critical measures going on uh, before and right now. Auditor General Karen Hogan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Evan. Travel bans or boosters or both? That is the question facing the world as it tries to cope with the new Omicron variant and still doesn't have any really good data on it. And even if Omicron proves to be less dangerous than some believe, the Delta variant is dangerous enough. New modeling in Canada suggests Canada is on track for a COVID-19 resurgence. Omicron would only make that worse if it actually takes hold.
although most of the initial cases were detected in recent international travelers or their close contacts. Cases with no known links to travel have been reported more recently, which may be indicative of community transmission. In response, of course, provinces like Ontario are moving to accelerate their booster eligibility in a bid to curb the spread of the virus. And the federal government has already imposed travel bans on 10 countries that have Omicron, all in the African country, but certainly not all the countries that have the Omicron variant. Do travel bans work? And why is the World Health Organization urging countries to lift those bans? Well, let's find out. Joining me now is Dr. Peter Singer. He's a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization, and he is in Vancouver. Great to have you here, as always. Look, Canada imposed these travel bans on the 10 African countries in the wake of the emergence of Omicron. Then the WHO quote said, and I'll quote them, urged countries around the world not to impose flight bans on Southern African nations due to their concern about the new Omicron variant. Does the WHO not believe travel bans work? Well, Evan, thank you for having me on the show. Um, WHO's position on travel bans is that they should be science-based and time-limited. Um, we actually support uh, travel measures, so testing, screening, surveillance, quarantine, but we do oppose blanket uh, travel bans. And a couple of countries, uh, France and Switzerland, uh, recently uh, lifted uh, travel bans this week. But why, why the opposition to them? Do, do they believe that they're not effective? Or, and frankly, we've heard this criticism. Do are, is the WHO concerned that they are specifically targeted to African countries and with all the attendant resonances on that? When we say, Evan, that they should be risk-based, it means that uh, uh, countries scientifically should be uh, treated equally. That's our, that's our, uh, that's our guidance. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, travel measures like screening and testing and quarantine um, can have some limited effectiveness, especially early on, but they're not a silver bullet. They need to be a comprehensive package. And blanket travel bans are counterproductive. What you see is they actually punish the transparency of countries that report new variants and the great scientists there that uh, do that reporting with cutting-edge science. So on balance, they make the world a less safe place because we need those eyes and ears to know what's happening so, with variants. So would you advise Canada, yeah, have the, have the travel measures, but would you say to Canada, ditch the bans, lift those 10 countries off the ban list? You know, Evan, you quoted uh, the Director General uh, statement and tweet uh, um, in recent days. He did express disappointment and dismay about uh, the blocking of direct flights, about blanket travel bans, and about third country uh, testing requirements. So I think it's important to take a step back and look at the situation we're in with uh, Omicron. You know, what we know and what we don't know, because it's very important context uh, for this conversation. Okay, but is it, uh, we've got close to 80% double vaxxed here in Canada, and 90, or single vax and over almost 90% double vax. How important is a booster shot? Like, is it, is it boosters and bans equal protection? or is it boosters without bans is the best protection? How important are the booster shots right now? The, we understand why governments want to, uh, want to uh, promote booster shots, especially for high-risk individuals 
But WHO's guidance is in a in the situation of limited global supply of vaccines, which is in the situation we're in, we uh, we advise to prioritize primary courses. Why? Because that saves the most lives, and it is most likely to prevent future variants. And there are unvaccinated people in every country. So right. we're, we're not at all opposed to boosters. Right, but the WHO's position is there's vaccine inequity. You gotta give it to the rest of the country. The countries that don't even have a first vaccine before you take your third, then you've got provinces across this country who are saying as of January, everybody's eligible will after six months of their second dose will be eligible for booster. Canada's charging ahead with boosters because medicine says they're better protection. We have waning um, protection from the first two. Do you blame governments for doing that? As I said, Evan, we understand what governments are doing, and we, uh, we're following closely the issue of boosters. At the same time, 50,000 people died around the world last year, uh, last week, sorry. Most of those people were probably unvaccinated. Many of those lives could probably be saved. In Canada, the ICUs are filled with unvaccinated people. Um, our position is please uh, focus on vaccinating those people who are unvaccinated because that's the way to save the most lives and to uh, and to decrease the risk of variants. Wouldn't we rather prevent variants than be scrambling around, uh, be scrambling around dealing with them? You know, Evan, every day, eight times as many doses are given to boosters as to primary courses of vaccination. So that's the balance we're, we're dealing with. And yet right. the primary vaccination will save the most lives and prevent future variants. One last question on, on Omicron. That's the latest variant. It's caused spasms around the world, as you've seen. Travel bans, concern, anxiety. Should the world expect more variants? I mean, is this what we're about to see next year? The new year comes in and there's another new variant. Is that what the WHO expects? As Dr. Tedros said this week, Evan, when we end this pandemic is not a matter of chance, it's a matter of choice, and that choice is in our hands. So it depends what we do. If we don't vaccinate the world, and right now you've got 7% vaccination rates in Africa compared to, as you said, 80%, 70-80% in Canada, that inequity is not only morally outrageous, it is morally outrageous, it's self-defeating. Because if we don't vaccinate the world through vaccine donations, through letting countries buy, through transferring the technology, through sharing the intellectual property, if we don't vaccinate the world, we will have more right. variants. I, I, I hear you, sir. And you know most Canadians, if they're offered a third booster shot, will take it. And most governments here are nonetheless offering the booster shot. I do have to leave it there. Dr. Peter Singer, always good to have the special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization on the program. Thanks for your perspective this morning. Evan, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. That is obviously the mantra, especially as the inflation debate has overtaken the country with rates higher than they've been in 18 years. And it's a true kitchen table issue. According to a new report, food prices in Canada are expected to increase 5 to 7% in 2022, which could cost the average family of four close to 1000 bucks more a year on food. This is the Bank of Canada has kept its key interest rate target at 0.25%, super low. And they'll do that until they raise the rate sometime between April and September, they say. But what will or what can the federal government do about all this? Well, on Tuesday, the Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, Christopher Freeland, will finally unveil the 
fall fiscal update. Could the federal government rein in some of its spending? Will the targeted pandemic aid get approval from the House of Commons? We're going to follow the money with the scrum now to answer all that. CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier is back. So is Toronto Star Parliament Hill reporter Stephanie Levitz. And our special guest this round is the independent parliamentary budget officer, Eve Giroux. Uh, great to have you uh, join the show, Mr. Giroux. Um, you've looked at these books. Put in perspective the kind of spending uh, that we're, we have and, and what the finance minister, Christian Freeland, uh, is asking MPs to approve right now. So the minister is asking to approve a supplementary spending of about $13 billion. And these are the second supplementary estimates in the fiscal year. So the year started with the main estimates. There was an initial, an initial supplementary estimates earlier this year. And now it's the second set of supplementary estimates that the minister is asking parliamentarians to approve. And the government is asking uh, MPs and senators to approve that in, in a relatively expeditious way while they still haven't seen, nobody has seen, the final number for last year, the year that ended in March. So we don't know, I don't know as parliamentary budget officer and nobody knows except uh, people within the bureaucracy, how much was the deficit for the year that ended more than eight months ago, but yet the government is asking MPs and senators to vote as quickly as possible on the second set of supplementary estimates for the current year. So that strikes me as a bit, um, as a bit unusual. Yeah, by the way, provinces have all submitted their year-end. Steph, the federal government hasn't done that yet. So there's, a, there's an information void here, and we spoke about that, an information void at the, at the borders. But, but what, what about the politics of this debate as Christian Freeland is facing off again every week with Pierre Polyevra on this inflation debate? What's the biggest challenge for her in the fiscal update, Steph? Well, the biggest challenge for her is to cut through some of the political noise that's being created by the Conservatives about the issue of inflation, and, and they pull in a bunch of political threads in there. But the question for the, the Liberal government is what can they actually do to, to counter inflation and to help address the rising cost of, as the Conservatives put it, absolutely everything in this country right now? And, and I mean, it's tricky, right? There's lots of problems that feed into that. But I think at this point, this issue, this inflationary pressure, supply chain pressure, the rising cost of life, and as it'll go forward into next year, is probably the single biggest political football that will be tossed around in the House of Commons for the next six or seven months. And for the Liberal government to be asking members of Parliament to be voting to spend billions of dollars when they haven't even accounted for the billions they've already spent, I think raises a lot of serious questions about how much trust people can adequately place in the Liberals to be managing the nation's finances at the moment. Yeah, George, what do you make of this? Again, I, these numbers are big, $397 billion. That's the only the money they have to vote on. There's already another $100 billion in other programs that they don't even vote on, bringing it to $497 billion. These are big, big numbers, Joyce. Uh, how does the politics of those, the spending play into the politics of inflation? Well, I think for, you know, for the average Canadians, perhaps the, the, the biggest concern is the cost of living. Um, you said $1,000 per family. That's just the cost of food is $1,000 more uh, per year. And that's just an average. It could be a lot more than that. So that is really what hits home. People, when they talk about, you know, debts and deficits of governments, it is concepts that are somewhere up there. Uh, inflation is an important one. Uh, people are worried. Not only that, the government wants to squeeze through in just a few weeks uh, not only the spending bill, but other bills as well. They're just trying to cram this all through the House before they rise for six weeks. Not only that, 
but the fiscal update that we're expecting in two days from now is three days before the House rises. So how much debate is there going to be about right. that? Yves Giroux, what are you and looking... And also, I mean, they've got to... Go ahead, Steph. Sorry. I was just going to say the government also has to come back with a better answer on the affordability question than mm -hmm. lowering the cost of daycare. Because that seems to be their standard answer every time they're attacked on affordability. Well, look, we're bringing daycare down to $10 a day. I'm a parent who, if Ontario ever signs a deal, would absolutely benefit from having cheaper daycare. But that, one, that does not apply to everybody. And two, that's really far off. And everybody's prices are going up right now. Uh, Yves Giroux, what are you looking for on Tuesday from the fiscal update? What would be the, the, the things you're watching for in terms of the red flags? Well, I'll be watching for a couple of things. I've already alluded to the fact that we don't have yet the numbers for the year that ended more than eight months ago. So I'll be looking for that either in the update or before. I'll also be looking for what the government plans for its deficit or a smaller deficit, maybe returning to balance eventually. So I'll be looking for the path forward for the next couple of years for the deficit and what the government will do with uh, public finances, which is very important if we are to return to more sustainable levels of deficit. And we have no idea yet as to what that could look like, especially after the government uh, ran on a platform that included by our account between 50 and 60 billion dollars of new net spending even after you take into consideration the potential tax increases that were in the platform. Joyce, then there's the issue of the COVID supports. I know that, that they're, they're not going to rein those in, but with new Omicron, does that take the wind out of the sails of the Conservatives who say stop the spending? Or is the fact that the deficits are growing with no numbers take the wind out of the sails of the Liberals who keep spending? We need a debate here. We need a, a debate to find out all this spending, what are the consequences, the short-term consequences and the long-term consequences on productivity, for instance. Uh, the Conservatives are saying that inflation is just inflation. It's because Justin Trudeau's spending. But, but that's not quite true. We know that that's not true. So right now we're having a political debate and half-truths are, are, are flying around, but we can't put our finger on it because we don't even know how much these people have actually spent of taxpayers' money and not even of taxpayers' money. How long will it take to pay it back or return to, 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 to zero deficit? I mean, that, that is something um, that, that is a mirage. I mean, it's not going to happen uh, in the next years. Uh, Joy, uh, Steph, last word to you. What are you expecting on Tuesday with the fiscal update? One of the things I'm also looking for, Evan, is for them to fix some of the problems that have been identified with the existing pandemic benefits structure. And namely, that's folks who are seeing other benefits they, were ent they are entitled to get clawed back because they were receiving pandemic benefits, ultimately leaving them worse off. And some of those folks are the most marginalized in society, which is what these benefits purported to help in the first place. That's a big key demand of the NDP this session. And, it, you know, I think that it, the Liberals are trying really hard to find a solution and maybe the fiscal update is where we see the answer. Okay, got to leave it there. Stephanie Levitz, Yves Giroux, Joyce Napier, great to have the three of you back on the program. And thank all of you for watching. That is question period for this week. I'll see you back here tomorrow night on CTV's Power Play, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. And we will be back here in seven short days. Hug your loved ones.